What's your secret to being happy? <laughs> being compassionate to self, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, I used to beat myself up for the things that I'm really bad at, and I'm bad at so many things. And I used to focus on those things and, you know, think, oh, God's sake, Tom, how can you do that? They have to learn the lesson that you're good at certain things and that's what you should focus on. And just accept that you're bad at other things. You can't be good at everything. Hello, and hopefully, welcome back to the Soapbox podcast, the podcast that gives you an insight into the people that do insight best. I'm Richard Brown, a research director at Box Clever, and I'm joined as ever by our marketing manager, the superb Tilly Lewis. So for our sixth episode, we are very pleased to welcome Tom Kerr, who has spent a lifetime in research, most recently supporting Aura, uh, the UK's biggest client-side research, networking and events organisation. Tom, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Nice to be here. So Tom, you're well known to the market research industry. You have worked both client-side and agency-side and we are very happy that you're here with us today on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. It's a good starting point. How did you end up in research, Tom? I think like with most people, by accident. I uh, had started on a graduate programme with John Menzies, as most of us called them, John Mingus, they would insist upon. And I ended up working in the records and books section and came across market research whilst uh, on my graduate programme. And it, it piqued my interest. And uh, so much so that I checked it out, was fortunate enough to meet somebody from the world of market research, had a conversation with them, which led to further conversations with people working on the agency side. And I decided to jump onto the agency world. So I got hold of the Market Research Society handbook, wrote out letters, sent off about 50, and then got a job with the company that started with the letter A. So I could have saved myself 49 letters. <laughs> and if it wasn't research, what do you think you would have ended up doing? In the land of whimsy, I'd love to have been an opera singer, but you need a voice for that. I think I'd probably have gone down the training route. Yeah. The reason I went into John Menzies was to work with people. I thought retail would provide that solution and market research offered that solution. So I always knew it was going to be a people-oriented kind of career for me. And with all of your experience, Tom, all of your wisdom, if there were any youngsters out there listening who are thinking about a career in research or an insight, what would you say to them? My first thing would say would be absolutely go for it. It's a wonderful world, the world of research and analytics. I would suggest that they look closely at their own values and drives because the world of market research comes with its uh, stresses, shall we say, because it's a world of adventure and it's a world of solution finding. Those going into analytics, of course, will have a mathematical background. So they, they can look at themselves and think about their risk appetite. If they have a low risk appetite, then I would suggest go down the accountancy path because in that path you learn how to do stuff and then you just repeat, repeat, repeat. But in the world of analytics, you have to come up with answers and solutions. So it is challenging and can be enervating. But um, for those of uh, uh, the, the right mindset and the, the right personality, it's, it's, uh, 
it's the most rewarding career path, I believe. Yeah, tell us a bit more about those rewards then, Tom. What can we get out of a career in insight and research? Okay, well, I think the, skill, the skills of the researcher really lend themselves to every aspect of, of management. Um, as Tilly said, uh, right at the beginning, I, I worked on both sides. So I, I learned or cut my spurs on agency side. And that's when you learn analytics. That's when you learn how to present. That's when you learn how to run discussions, which basically is meeting management by any other name. So you learn fundamental skills which transfer naturally into the world of business. So when I went into the corporate world, then I was being trained in things like influencing skills and leadership and um, strategy, really. So you put the two together and you have a, a composite, which is all the toolkit that you require to manage at a senior level. This, it has surprised me, I think, over my career, just how valuable the core research skill sets are. They really are fundamental to success. The understanding of people is probably the most important thing in people management. And you can't do that well unless you understand yourself and understand other people. And of course, the way to understand other people is to listen closely to what they say and what their values are. What do you think has been your best moment in research, Tom? There were so many. I was fundamental or was involved in the creation of Sainsbury's Bank. That was one of my first challenges on the client side, where we were a new unit called the Strategic Analysis Unit. It was the brainchild of the then treasurer. And there was an idea that there may be an opportunity to extend into supermarket banking. And I was put in this project to identify, was there really an opportunity? What was the size of the opportunity? So we then had to write the business case, present that to the board of the bank, and they took our recommendations and we teamed up with Sainsbury's. So I then had to create a launch plan for Sainsbury's Bank, um, which was great. Uh, really loved it. So Sainsbury's Bank came about and still exists to this day. Well, yeah, how lovely to have a kind of a long-standing, successful and tangible result from your work. Because I think sometimes, not necessarily on the client side, but agency side, you can work on a huge project, you can invest yourself in it, and then not necessarily through any fault of your own or anyone else's, it, it's gone. And you don't really feel the impact and, and the results. You don't necessarily see that. You're just on to the next. Mm -hmm. So it's so nice to, every time you see Sainsbury's Bank, it must be, to think, well, you know, I, I was involved with that. Yeah, I was part of that and, yeah. and set it up. Absolutely. I mean, I've always had a belief, that because having come from the agency side, I always had a belief that it was the responsibility of the insight head to a protect the agency or you know, you're choosing the agencies in the first place but to protect the agency but also to involve the agency in the strategic development because it just makes sense and why not utilize the capabilities of all the agencies that you use collectively whether it's ad agencies or research agencies to come into the frame and um, be part of the solution as well well it's a partnership isn't it well it should be I it suppose. is yeah, everyone, everyone wants to know what happens next. You know, it's, it's kind of like getting to the last page of a book and finding it's missing. You know, you, you kind of want to know what happens with the, the good work that you've done. And it also makes sure that everything's been understood as well during the project. Yeah. And um, with that, mm. what's been your mm. worst you know moment? Coming. He knows the question. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from uh, today, of course. 
Oh, no, today's a pleasure. <laughs> I think the biggest disappointment I felt was, again, I'll go back to Bank of Scotland, which is interesting. I was picked out as one of three strategists from Bank of Scotland to work on an easy money business case. It had already been attempted and... Stelios Hadjia knew at EasyJet and the senior executive of the bank had rejected it. So three of us were picked up from the Bank of Scotland and Stelios Hadjia knew put a strategic squad from his incubation centre in the Rotunda in, in London onto this project. We were sent up to the wilds of Scotland for three months to write a business case and, and we did. And we created this business case and we pitched it to Stelios and the exec of uh, the bank. And it was rejected. And it wasn't rejected because the business case wasn't solid. It was rejected because the senior exec team at Bank of Scotland felt that Stelios Hadjia and who hadn't shown them due respect. I'd failed to bring them on board with what we were doing. So basically, I learned a big lesson at that, which was, engage your stakeholders throughout the process to make sure that when it comes to the end deliverable, they already know what's coming and they sign up for it. So that, that's probably my biggest, no, I've made so many mistakes. That's one that sort of springs to mind. Well, that's a, a dramatic tale of not bringing your stakeholders on board, but Rest assured, listeners, that Box Clever always brings <laughs> stakeholders on board. It's written into every proposal. But you are absolutely right. We've probably all been in situations where we've put our heart and soul into a project. And when you come to debrief it, people that potentially you've never met arrive. And then the most powerful person in the room folds their arms and says, what have we done this for? Or I had one where it was, why did you go and research in those stores? To which silence, I thought, the insight managers might step in and say, yeah, because we told them to. <laughs> they didn't. So I had to say, because we were told to. And he just said, well, you know, you went to the wrong ones probably. But anyway, carry on. <laughs> oh, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> that is an example where your client absolutely should step in. I mean, I, I, I think I alluded to it earlier. Part of the role of the head of insight and the insight team is to protect the agency. Because uh, there will always be some dissent internally it's just the way it works politics exists and uh yeah they need strength and courage and defense well we just soldiered on yeah <laughs> <Step> <laughs> that's what you have to do. let's get on with it i tell you what i've got 50 slides and i'm presenting them and i don't care wait to go it's what you have to do and what about within your career what would you say has been the biggest insight i know that's quite a tough question it is a tough question and i don't know why again i i, I go back to bank of scotland this is quite some time ago I guess I feel an emotional attachment to, to that particular period. But it was a finding in the world of savings. Uh, the challenge was put to is how can we attract savings but still deliver low interest rates? Which is a great question, actually, because it's kind of what banks really want to do. And, yeah, we uncovered that um, the majority of savers actually didn't think they had enough money to merit chasing rates. Um, so we came up with the Relax campaign. And the Relax campaign was predicated upon the fact that people just didn't want to be able to get to their savings easily, but they still wanted to be able to get to them. So um, I think the core insight for me there was that uh, people need help with discipline when it comes to savings. I don't know if you're aware of this, Tom, but 
at Box Clever, we are big fans of food. So we would like to ask you, what is your top biscuit? Oh, it's a hobnob. A hobnob? A hobnob. With chocolate or without? Oh, with chocolate. With chocolate. I've got, yeah, a little bit of a sweet tooth. I guess I should be the Scot. I probably should have said a Tunnock's caramel wafer. Or a shortbread. You have to go with your heart on this. <laughs> you have to. And I think when you said hobnob, I thought, good, he's right. I mean, there's a world of opinions, but there are also facts. <laughs> but it has to be it has to be a chocolate. Hobnob. It has to be chocolate. It's got everything. It's got the sweetness. It's got the texture. But also, it's got a bit of saltiness. Yeah, it has That's a bit the of kick. saltiness. That's the kick. Yeah. I mean, I should be defending the uh, Terence Caramel Waiver because it is a, it's a bit of an institution in Scotland. However, it's so incredibly bad for you health-wise. And uh, I'm sure it's not really as tasty as we Scots kid ourselves on about. Anyway, I'm, I'm going to be damned by the Tunnocks family for this comment. But uh, yeah, definitely a hobnob. Tom, I wanted to ask you about young Tom, because we talked about your, the start of your career, but of course, plenty of years before that. What were you like as a youngster? What were you like at school? What were you like growing up? Quite a shy, sensitive kid, really, I think. Didn't really like the limelight uh, in, in any way. Sporting, very active sport-wise, but kind of cautious, I guess. Yeah, pretty free-feeling. Yeah, but content, a contented young fellow. What do you think young Tom would think of the Tom of today if they could meet? I think I would find the old Tom is closer to the young Tom than he has been through a big part of his career. Mm-hmm. I think the thing for me in recent times is, I think all of us, we race to adulthood, don't we? And um, all the temptations come our way. You know, we launch into going to pubs and, uh, and all the rest of it. And then we launch into working life and start to build a career. And then we almost start to become our image, you know, of what other people think always. And then we start to exhibit behaviours that we feel are the right behaviours in the environment that we're working in. And we start to kind of believe our, our own myth uh, a bit. And there was a point when I gave up corporate life Actually, probably even a bit before that, because at Tesco Bank, I took on a role there of a resident expert, and I didn't want to manage people anymore, and I I didn't want to be high up the ladder. I wanted to be back at grassroots doing research and basically operating with the workforce again, really. Uh, And that was great, because what I was able to do then was kind of turn the clock back a bit and have more fun. And I think through that time, I thought, I want to recapture the child within. I think it's important in life to take life seriously, but not to take yourself seriously. I think I've made the mistake in corporate life of maybe taking myself a bit too seriously and had to relearn not to take myself seriously. How about you, Tilly? What would young Tilly think of Tilly today? Oh, I'd be massively disappointed. Let's talk about outside of work, Tom. Do you have any niche or geeky interests? I've got one that my wife thinks is really weird. I don't think it's so very weird. I gather bits of wood. I like wood. Actually, going back to the kids, what would I like to have been if not researcher? I'd love to have been a carpenter. Oh, yeah. But I'm useless with my hands, completely useless. I come from a family of tradesfolk, and they always just gave me a book and pushed me in the corner because I was supposed to be the, kind of the clever one. But they didn't teach me how to do all these things. I'd love to have been a carpenter. So I gather wood. I like wood. I've got chunks of wood. In fact, I've got half trees in my conservatory, which my wife would like me to junk. Do you do anything with the wood? Do you like use it for the fire, carve it, or you just like to No, I just look at it. Just look <laughs> at it. 
occasionally sniff it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's definitely the, the most niche and geeky yeah. hobby. You know, people are like, oh, well, I like tennis. You're like, well, that's not that niche. Yeah. You're collecting random bits of wood. Is there a name for it? Weird, I think. Uh, there might be an entire subculture that you're not aware of and you could go to sort of, see, I assume there'd be secret midnight meetings of wood foragers. Of wood lovers. Yeah. Absolutely. The wood lord. Yeah. And you'd be like, yeah. oh, well, there's a lovely offcut here. Lovely. Wood elves. Yeah. They're lovely things. No, but I do. I, I think I just I only love collecting stuff. It doesn't really matter what it is. So just to have a collection and also then to be engaged in collecting, because wherever you go, you've got half an eye on. There might be a nice little bit of wood here. In the <laughs> yeah. same way that if you like teapots, you never know. You may come across a teapot that you like, right? So it gives you a little pep each day potentially there's always potentially a little treasure particularly when you like wood and it's everywhere <laughs> it's like, oh wow yeah tom a good question here for you what really annoys you i was just thinking tom's come across as you're you know, a very so nice person exactly so Warm. kind so wise let's get him yeah apart from bad wood what what really annoys <laughs> you things wood wood replacement yeah and a business front poor managers really annoy me Inevitably, I, I, I mentor a, a number of people and invariably what I'm helping them with is how to manage poor managers. That really mm -hmm. annoys me. It annoys me that poor managers can get into positions of management. And I think, why the hell doesn't somebody figure out that they're really bad at what they're doing here? What is a poor manager then, Tom? What are the sort of the, the key features of a bad manager? Oh God, so many to list. Bullying, putting themselves before others, managing up the way rather than managing their team, not seeing the bigger picture. Not taking the time to get to know people who work for them. Like, you know, the fundamental of management is it's like bringing up a number of, number of families. You mm. have to get to know everybody that works for you because you have to understand what it is that lights the fire. Because if you don't, you're not going to inspire them to perform better. I think it's probably a bit of ambition and probably a limited intellect, invariably. I mean, that sounds like it's quite a damning list, isn't it? But I was going to um, say something in defense of bad managers. A guy in a focus group ages ago, who's a lot older than me, said in the old days when he was starting out, managers were expected to manage and nothing else. That was their job. But today's managers have to manage and carry on doing their shop floor work, for want of a better expression. And there just isn't enough hours. You know, so that's why management tasks get let go or done badly, or you focus on that and then you don't do the other part of your, your job mm, and you, yeah. just, you just can't manage it. And um, yeah, it really struck me that because I think there's a lot of job roles where you're just stretched, aren't you? Just trying to do too much. I mean, I certainly remember a time when there were people who were people managers. That's what they did. And they dedicated the time to having one-to-ones and team meetings and collaborating. I mean, there's a lovely, a lovely chart which looks at the, the four-way spread of management. So you manage up the way, and for those who are ambitious, that's what they choose to do. They'll spend all the time pleasing the boss, and, of course, part of what you're doing is making the boss look good. They'll spend their time networking with their peer group, or they can spend their time managing their, um, managing their team. I've not really come across anybody who does all of that well. Mm. It's too much. But it used mm. to be, didn't it, that like, especially in like sort of TV, managers were disliked, weren't they, by the shop floor for one, you know, or whatever you want to call it. But because it was, they had a, upgraded to a cushier number. Whereas now you'd look at a lot of managers and go, I'm glad I'm not in your shoes, but you're doing my job and an extra one. 
probably not for much more money. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Of course. <laughs> I can think of a time uh, in corporate life when I looked at uh, the team working for me, my direct reports, and thought I'd change place at the drop of a hat with any one of you. I seem to be the one taking all the flack, having to pull all this together, working ridiculous hours, spinning all the plates. And why? You know, uh, one of my heroes in life was a fellow called Chris Longbottom at the agency that has now become known as Cantor. And Chris Longbottom was promoted from account director to commercial director. And he hated it. I mean, a commercial director doesn't deal with clients anymore. A commercial director deals with money and targets and finances. So he took the very remarkable step of demoting himself and promoting one of his team to commercial director. And then he became really happy again. I don't know if he reduced his salary. Probably didn't. But it was <laughs> such a courageous step. And uh, I saw him go from being a happy guy to a miserable guy to happy again. And I thought, there's a lesson in that. Yeah, I think that's great that that he tried something, but then he reflected and, you know, we, we suit certain situations and certain roles and that's all right yeah. you don't have to be good at the next thing or the thing that you know you feel like you should be aiming for you can be happy doing whatever it is you're doing right absolutely couldn't agree more and i think an awful lot of people are uh, one step above where they should be and everybody should look to identify what their level is mm -hmm. because uh, happiness comes from that what's your secret to being happy <laughs> being compassionate to self i think mm-hmm uh, I used to beat myself up for the things that I'm really bad at, and I'm bad at so many things. And I used to focus on those things and, you know, think, oh, God's sake, Tom, how can you do that? They have to learn the lesson that you're good at certain things and that's what you should focus on and just accept that you're bad at other things. You can't be good at everything. So being compassionate to self, accepting your failings if people want to see them as failing. I used to have arguments with HR departments about, uh, you know, training programs. You know, we need to train up X, Y, and Z on these skills. They're not really good at that. And I think, but I don't employ them to do those things. I employ them to do these things that they're really good at. So why would I want to train them? I can find other people who are really good at those areas. And then the penny dropped with me. I thought, well, I should apply that same principle to me as well and focus on my strength and not my weaknesses. I think that's a good lesson for smaller businesses to take heed of, actually, that, you know, some people are midfielders, some people are strikers, some people are goalkeepers, some people can do all positions, but probably not many people can, mm -hmm. put square pegs in round holes. I'm going to start sounding like Harry Redknapp in a minute. <laughs> um, but I do believe in that. I do believe yeah, in that. Yeah, I do you too. Know, like you, you don't have to be good at everything. Try things. But if I was a, a business owner, I'd be looking to help people maximise the things that they like and are good at and get other people in to do the stuff that where, where the gaps are. Yeah. And I think what do you like is a key question in that area. Not just what you're good at. What do you like? Mm, that's where your passion comes from, doesn't it? I'm looking at the clock and there's some big questions mm. that we haven't asked. And one of them is, Tom, do you believe in ghosts? No, I don't believe in ghosts. I believe there has to be something else. There are too many imponderables, there are too many questions in this universe of ours. But I don't believe in ghosts. Aliens? Has to be something. Have to be something. I mean, out there and the myriad stars and galaxies. Yeah, there has to be something. It's it's impossible to imagine that there isn't, isn't it? Yeah, that we're the only 
source of life in in this universe. I don't know. I don't imagine they take trips to Earth like for summer holidays and sort of you know, appear and then disappear again. What about you? I mean, you may or may not have listened to this podcast before, Tom, but we have quite strong opinions when it comes to potatoes. So we want to ask you, <laughs> where do you stand on the chips versus fries versus wedges debate? And when I ask that, I mean, what's your favourite out of the three? Well, you can't beat a good chip. Yeah? Talk us through it. What what are we saying? Oh, properly prepared chip. Well, if you... If you're going to prepare a chip, now Hester here will know very well how to make a, a good chip. You have to do it in stages, have the right uh, oil, and uh, half cook them, take them out, pat them dry, give them time to cool down, put them back in again to a hot chip pan, and then bring them back to, and keep an eye on them, and just watch them start to turn brown. And just at the point where they start to turn brown, take them out, put them to one side, pat them dry, and there you have it. It's no more complicated than that. And what are your thoughts on wedges? Mm, don't get it, really. Why not just have <laughs> a baked potato? That, Tom, is the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're building a sort of a body of evidence or certainly a weight of opinion. We could abolish wedges, I think, mm. via this podcast. I think we've got the power to do that. Should probably change the name, shouldn't we? The Potato Podcast. Yeah. Very good, I like it. Tom, is there something about you that everyone would believe to be true, but you know actually isn't? God, that's a hell of a question. I've often thought that people think me more capable than I actually am. Why do you think they think that? I think people form judgments of others on what they see, and I think the way that you look it plays as much of a part in people's take on the type of person that you are mm -hmm. and uh, I think for whatever reason the, the way I look which is I'm a very ordinary human being and I think I look very ordinary and very acceptable and I think there's an aspect of that and maybe I have a, a an open face you know a bit kind of like Stan Laurel really that um, people then put interpretations on. So I think there's a, a physical representation that gives rise to a certain perception. Is it nice to be overestimated or is it something that kind of riddles you with anxiety? Well, I, I think I've always had a habit of um, under-promising and over-delivering. Yeah. Um, and I know certainly at one point in my career, and it's, it's a relatively recent term, this imposter syndrome, but when I did have high office... I used to look around me and think, how the hell did I get here? I didn't ask for it. People just kept on giving me more teams to look after and then promoting me. And I'd think, kind of, why? How did this happen to me? I'd look at other people that I think they're much better than I am. What am I doing, you know, two or three levels above them? It was only afterwards and with hindsight when I look back, and I've actually watched other exec teams uh, in action, where I thought, actually, I was doing a good job there. But I just didn't know it and nobody was telling me I was doing a good job. And that probably is another indication of the type of person I am because I'm out of reference. So I look for somebody to say, you're doing a good job. I need that kind of reassurance, if you like. And that's enough. You know, that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's good. That's fine. And I think that's a challenge when you're in senior management if you're out of reference. It's also a challenge if you're in a reference and you're too arrogant. But, um, yeah. I think it's a challenge 
it doesn't necessarily have to be but i think as you you get a bit older and you maybe get elevated to senior positions there is an assumption i think that you don't need a pat on the back that you don't need reassurance that you don't need positive reinforcements and that actually that you should be doing that for other people you know but the question is is anyone doing that who does that for you Mm, (laughs) yeah we had this conversation on a train once i'm sure um me and a friend and i think you don't always realize how much you need a pat on the back until you do get an isolated one and you think wow that's that really has I made me feel yeah, yeah i needed that and it gives me this the sort of the strength almost to confidently keep doing what i'm doing yeah absolutely and nobody's an island unto themselves and you need the support infrastructure and often you have to put it into place yourself and that's why mm. mentors are such great it's also why it's great to mentor because you can be reminded continuously actually here's a bad habit i have I discovered through training that I'm not good at giving positive praise. I feel it, and I imagine that people are kind of sensing what I feel, but I don't say it. So I've had to learn to continuously give the positive praise when I feel it. It's not just sort of imagining that somehow they're through some sort of osmosis that's going to get across to the incumbent. So, yeah, positive praise. Tom, not to sound like I am stereotyping here at all, but... As I'm sure people have realised, you are Scottish and I know that you are a whiskey fan. So I would like to ask you, what is your favourite tipple when it comes to whiskey? Well, first of all, I think of myself more as British than Scottish. Okay, sorry. Um, Apologies. (laughs) That's okay. No no apology required. I spent many years in in London and I'm very fond of England. My favourite tipple? Uh, Well, it's going to be whiskey because it just is. And it's Fetter Cairn, 18-year-old. It's a little belter of a whiskey. Little heard of, but uh, really super. And I only discovered it because I, I used to... My, my view is if I'm going to have a whiskey, I'm going to have a really good whiskey because I'm only going to mm-hmm. have one. And that's where you and I differ. <laughs> <laughs> the first bit, yes. The second bit, absolutely no. not. No, it's not, like, it's not like a hobnob, you know, one's enough. <laughs> I don't know. I'm willing to argue. <laughs> do you add water or ice or do you just drink it straight? Nope, water, splash of water, just, uh, just get it right and... Uh, do you own a pipette or do you just free pour? I do not own a pipette. Uh, yeah, it's just <laughs> pour from the tap. Very good. The whiskey that you mentioned, is it, where are we at on that that lovely, very market researchy quadrant that you get? Is it smoky, peaty or are we more floral, sweet? It's it's more like um, vanilla and honey. It's Speyside, so it's really smooth. It's very nice. It's lovely. I'm, I'm not so keen on peaty. I don't like it. It's, it tastes too much like alcohol, if I'm honest. Well, it makes it it makes choosing whiskey very very difficult. But you go on like the Malt Whiskey Society and look at the reviews, because whiskey is so diverse, the reviews are useless. One person will say this whiskey is the best whiskey I have ever tasted. Absolutely five stars. It will be my go-to from now on. The next person will write, absolutely terrible. My children bought it for my birthday and I tipped it down the sink. <laughs> <laughs> but I do have one of your clients. The award-winning AQR entry from was it last year or the year before? With uh, last year, yeah, the Isle of Rassy Distillery whiskey. Mm. I uh, actually have two bottles of their whiskey, and it is very nice. It is. Have we still got some in, left in the office? That's Somebody long drank gone. it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> What's next for you, Tom? Be that within life or or within your career? What, what have you got planned next? Well, I've come away from 
uh, a chunk of my activity on Aura. I've been actively supporting Aura for seven years now, so it's time to hand over the baton to, to Richard Drury, which is great. So I'll still do the events there, but that frees up more time for me now. So I'm looking to continue with mentoring. I, I really enjoyed that. I've got a really interesting group of, of mentees. And the occasional project, just to keep my hand in, which is great fun. Mm. But uh, I tend to do that only for uh, people who basically have worked for me at some point in time. So that's really nice to have that opportunity. But I'm hoping to move into non-exec director roles. I think that's yeah. the next stage now. Uh, so rather than being actively hands-on, to be much more of a, a sounding board uh, and a kind of wizened advisor, I suppose. Sounds very exciting. We tend to end on the same question, don't we, Tilly? Mm-hmm. Which is that if you could say thank you or maybe even sorry to someone, who would it be and what would you say? Well, I'm still thinking business terms. So I, mean, I think I would thank my wife for long-suffering for putting up with me. Oh, I'd, I'd, I'd certainly go back to the guys at um, what was AGB, is now Kant, um, this big part of Kant. We were working in super panel back then and the quant stuff. And, yeah, guys like uh, Chris Longbottom, who pushed me into going into client services. I was running the analytics team at the time. I'd come through the stats department. And I didn't really want to be in front of audiences. It gave me the screaming abdabs. But they saw something and they pressed me into doing it. And as a first tester, they gave me a challenge to give a presentation to quite a large internal audience. And I remember standing outside the room thinking, I could just run away and pretend I was ill and nobody would ever know and I wouldn't have to do this thing. Um, But I didn't and I chose to go in and it just really worked. But if they hadn't pressed me into doing it, I would never have gone through that that door. Um, so I have to thank them because that really led to everything else that followed. That that was a turning point for me because, as I said at the start, I was actually quite a shy, bashful, kind of sensitive kid, and I didn't want to be in front of audiences. But I, what was uncovered by these guys was that I had this talent for being in front of audiences and. Uh, And I think it's true that often introverted, sensitive types do rise to the occasion when it comes to being in front of ones and presenting. It doesn't have to be the extrovert. In fact, often the extrovert over-exit and it's the introvert with their sensitivity that comes up trumped. So I'd thank them. And I'd thank Gavin Masterton (laughs) back to Bank of Scotland again. That's so interesting, because that was my transition from agency side to client side. And uh, he was the main man at Bank of Scotland, which then had the most highly rated management team in Britain. And he wanted a strategic analysis unit. And But for that move, I would never have learned the skills of management. So I'd have to thank him. We must say a massive thank you to Tom for taking time out of his busy schedule to be with us today. We hope you've had as much fun as we have. As always, we'd love to hear from you, so please do get in touch with us via our Twitter account at WeBoxClever and let's get a hashtag trending. And that is hashtag SoapboxClever and that's all one word. You can also get in touch with us via email on TillyLewis at BoxCleverConsulting.com So if there's a question about market research, insight, box clever or you're also a collector of wood then uh, please do get in touch and thank you for listening Mm